how amazing things happen on the other side of failure. None of us like to fail, and if we could do our best, we would engineer life where we never had to go through failure. But you've experienced failure, and I've experienced failure, and what we've discovered is on the other side of that, sometimes amazing ideas, breakthroughs, uh, new relationships, new opportunities happen. Just a few examples from history. When Walt Disney took his first job at a newspaper, he was fired, and his bosses cited his lack of imagination as the reason for his firing. Wouldn't you hate to be that boss who gave that paint slip out? Sir James Dyson was the inventor of the Dyson vacuum cleaner, and he went through 5,126 failed prototypes before he invented his first working Dyson vacuum. And the famous comic, Jerry Seinfeld, was booed off stage during his very first stand-up routine. Amazing when you think about it, that his career, as successful as he's been, started with such failure. Now, a huge part of my life and my work includes standing on a stage not that different from Jerry's, definitely different setting, definitely different content, but when I first started doing this thing, preaching, I was a failure. My very first message that I gave at age 20, I was dating a girl at a time, and so we went to dinner with her family afterwards, and her dad said, Scott, you were so passionate. I could tell you believed in what you said, but truthfully, I have no idea what you said because you were talking too fast. A couple years later, I got to give my first sermon at the church I was serving, and I brought a copy of my notes. These were not my notes. These are what I gave people. Two pages, front and back, 12-point font. My sermon clocked at 55 minutes, and if communicating clearly was the goal, I failed. Now, aren't you so glad I've made so much progress between then and today? I, I share a little bit of that kind of funny failure to set up this question. I want to encourage you to ask yourself this question this morning. What are you doing in response to your failure? Because if amazing things happen on the other side of our failure or after we fail, then I think we all have an opportunity to respond to failures today. Now, when we think about the failures in the Bible, the Apostle Peter had one of the biggest failures. He had one of the most famous failures. His failure is recorded in Matthew 26, where we read this. When he'd gone out of the gateway, another woman saw him and told those who were there, this man was with Jesus the Nazarene. Again, Peter denied it with an oath, I don't know the man. So again, this is the, at least the second time he said this. After a little while, those standing there approached and said to Peter, you really are one of them, since even your accent gives you away. Then he started to curse and to swear with an oath, I don't know the man. Immediately a rooster crowed, and Peter remembered the words that Jesus had spoken before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And he went outside and wept bitterly. You know, famously, we refer to Thomas as but I wonder why we don't refer to Peter as backstabbing Peter. Or uh, turncoat Peter. Or terrible friend Peter. Because I think his failure is way worse than Thomas. And so today, when Peter opens his letter that we're going to look at today, 
And he talks to us about being a witness to Jesus. He's not standing way above us as the perfect example. He's standing right next to us as someone who has tried and failed. And so I know that most of the time when you hear about the idea of witnessing or sharing your faith, almost every follower of Jesus feels inadequate. Almost all of us have examples where we fail. Almost all of us have moments where we've said, man, I wish I could have that opportunity back. And so today you're going to hear from somebody who's not a master, but who's a failure. And I hope that his words today encourage you in the same way they've encouraged me. If you're new to Cornerstone, we're so glad that you're here today. We're in a series called A Living Hope in a Hostile World. And we're looking at a letter that one of the disciples of Jesus, this guy who failed, yeah, failure is not, an, is not a kind of prevention for being included in the Bible. It's actually your, your qualification for getting included in the Bible. Peter's talking to us about how we can be people who have a living hope and share that hope in the midst of a hostile world. And as we move to the second half of this series, here's the main idea we're going to hear from Peter today. God wants to use you to point others to hope in him. God wants to use you, even though you don't feel like you're qualified. God wants to use you, even though you failed. God wants to use you even though you don't feel like you have what it takes. Because if God can use someone who literally denied with cursing to the face of Jesus that he knew Jesus, God can certainly use you and me to point others to hope in him. Now we're going to be in Peter's first letter today. It's called 1 Peter. It's near the back of your Bible. We're going to be in the third chapter five chapters long, so this is week six. We're moving to the second half of this series. And what we're going to see today is that we can be people who share the hope of Jesus to a hostile world. If you have your Bible this morning, I'd encourage you to stand with me as we honor God's Word. If you don't have your Bible, that's perfectly fine. Catherine will keep you up to speed as you follow along on the screen. Here's what Peter wrote, beginning in verse 13. Who then will harm you if you are devoted to what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness, you are blessed. Do not fear what they fear or be intimidated. But in your hearts regard Christ the Lord as holy, ready at any time to give a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience, so that when you are accused, those who disparage your good conduct in Christ will be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered for sins once and for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring you to God. He was put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit, in which he also went and made proclamation to the spirits in prison, who in the past were disobedient, when God patiently waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared in it, a few, that is eight people, were saved through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a good conscience towards God through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers subject to him. Jesus, I pray that 
for those of us in this room who feel like failures, unqualified, and unready for the opportunities that you are putting us in, I pray that today you would help us to see all that we have in you. And I pray that you would grow and strengthen the confidence in our hearts and our spirits to do what is that you've called us to do. May the words of my mouth today, Jesus, and the meditations of my heart be pleasing to you, my rock and my redeemer. In your name we pray. Amen. You can be seated. So if Peter's right, and we're capable and called to be witnesses to the hope that we have in Jesus, then I think there's two questions that each of us, every witness, has to answer. And the questions are basic, but the, the answers are difficult. And here's the first one. The first question we have to answer is, how are we to witness? The first thing Peter does in 1 Peter 3, 13 through 17 is he answers this question, how are we to witness? And he begins by saying first, if you're taking notes, that we are to witness without fear or intimidation. In verse 14 he says, do not fear what they fear. And do not be intimidated. Now, now, I found in talking to people who are followers of Jesus that, that most people are intimidated or afraid of the idea of verbally sharing their faith with someone else. Living their faith out, doing it with their actions, that's, that's one thing. But speaking it is far more difficult, and for many it's far more intimidating. And yet, the first thing that Peter says here, he says, don't fear what they fear, those you're sharing with, and don't be intimidated by them. He goes on, he says that you should share, you should be a witness in a way that invites curiosity. Your witnessing should invite curiosity. He says that you should do this in such a way that anyone who asks you for the reason, for the hope that is in you, you should be ready to give them an answer. And this, this curiosity is, is this idea that, that we're living in such a way that our lives beg the question, why are you doing what you're doing? And that's essentially what we're doing with Fort Prescott Month, this month that we're in right now. We're serving our community in such a way that we're hoping to sow curiosity. People would ask, why are you doing what you're doing? And this has happened in almost every place we've served. People have said, okay, so where are you from? Why are you doing this? What's this all about? Uh, what's, the, what's the cost? What do I have to pay to get this? And we said, no, it's free. No strings attached. Well, why? And then we have a platform with their curiosity to share the reason that we would serve. The reason that we care. Which is a great segue into the third piece that Peter says. He says, always ready. We should share without fear and intimidation. We should share with it invites curiosity. And we should always be ready. I played baseball all the way through childhood. Um, and so I can remember just so many different kind of mantras and cliches that my coaches would pound into my head. And if you're a coach, you know that you never say anything original. It's like parenting. You repeat yourself all the time. And so I can remember one of my coaches quoting somebody, so I'm not going to attribute him because I know he wasn't that smart. He wasn't that creative. He's a great coach, but it wasn't like he was like, uh, you know, the Einstein of quotes. But here's what he said. He said, Scott, if you stay ready, you don't have to get ready. And he was talking to me about taking grounders and catching fly balls, but it was a life principle that I kept with me. 
that if you stay ready when the moment comes, you don't have to get ready. Because often, if you're not ready when the moment comes and you're getting ready, the opportunity will be gone before you're ready. And so Peter is saying here in verse 15, we should be ready at any time to give a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason for the hope that is in you. I don't know what's going to happen to you today or tomorrow or Wednesday or Friday. But if you're ready to share the reason why you have hope in Christ, then you don't have to get ready and find the words when the moment comes. And the fifth, the fourth thing he says, you should be ready to share the reason for your hope. Years ago, I, I can remember, uh, I bought a shirt as a teenager, and it said, preach the gospel at all times, if necessary, use words. It's a quote that's been attributed to St. Francis of Assisi. But one of the beautiful things about what happened since I was a teenager till now is we now have the internet. And I discovered that St. Francis didn't actually say that. It was just attributed to him. And truthfully, even if it had been attributed to St. Francis, Francis would have been wrong. How many of you in this room today who are followers of Jesus came to Christ just because somebody showed you things. No, eventually somebody had to open their mouth and tell you who Jesus was, tell you what he did, tell you how he came for you. So the idea of use words if necessary is wrong. It's like, no, no, use words when necessary. Because there's going to become a moment where anyone and everyone who comes to follow Jesus has to hear from someone. And so for those of you, I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna use my actions. Well, that will be great up until a point. But eventually, same as with you, you're going to have to share with them the reasons why they should put their faith in Christ. And here's the good news. You don't have to, to have an answer to every question to be an effective witness. So many of us think, well, you know what? I just don't have an answer to this. I don't have an answer to that. I don't know nothing about that. Um, I didn't go to seminary. I'm not a pastor. And so we go, I can't be an effective witness because I don't have an answer to every question. Well, if you took this same logic, there would be no teachers. There'd be no parents. There'd be no mentors. Because if you're either of those things, if you're a parent, a teacher, or a mentor, you know, you don't know everything. In fact, what you know is, is really little. That's you know, the difference between a new parent and an old parent. Old parents know how little they know. New parents think they know everything. And then life humbles them. So friends, you don't need to have an answer to every question to be an effective witness, but you do need to have an answer for your hope. Why are you hopeful? In the midst of what you're going through. Why do you have hope? Because your friends know that you're battling that illness. Your co-workers know that you're struggling financially. Your friends know that your marriage is not as in a, a good place as you project to the world. You, your friends know that your mom has cancer. That your dad is on hospice. That your move to Prescott didn't go exactly how you planned it. And when they ask, you need to have an answer, not to every theological or apologetic question in the world, but you've got
got to have an answer for why you have hope in Jesus in this moment. And then finally, how do we share our hope? Peter says, we do it with gentleness and reverence. With gentleness and respect. He says, have a, a ready at every moment a defense for the one who asks you for the reason and the hope that is in you. Yet, do this with gentleness and respect. Now let me tell you how I think a lot of us read this passage. To follow along on the screen. But in your hearts, regard Christ as holy. Ready at any time to give a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do this with disdain. How many of us have seen people share good news, but in a bad way? He says, don't do it with disdain. Don't do it with arrogance. Don't do it with hostility. Don't do it with defensiveness. Don't do it with animosity. Don't do it with disregard. Do it with gentleness and reverence. Do it with gentleness and respect. Translation, God cares about our words and our attitude. If you can remember as a kid, you learned it's not about what you said, it's about how you said it. There's lots of people who are trying to share the good news in such a way, or defending the good news in such a way, that on the receiving end of it feels far from good. Because all of us have lived life long enough to know how somebody feels about us when they're talking to us. This is why Thanksgiving is going to be so hard for some of us. Because there's people that you're going to sit at your table with that you don't really like. That if you're honest, you have disdain for. You have animosity towards. And those things are hard to filter and hide. And so as we share the good news, Peter is saying, hey, it's not just about what you say, it's also about how you say it. Do it with gentleness and respect. Being right is not an excuse for being mean. Sharing the truth is not an excuse for doing that without love. Paul famously said in 1 Corinthians 13, you can have all the right answers in the world and be totally justified and lack love and you're like a, a banging cymbal or a clanging gong. And somewhere along the way in our world and in America and again in certain sections of Christianity, it became okay to be right and that justify any sorts of attitudes and behaviors and attitudes. And friends, this is why I just want to remind you, if you can remember when you had little kids and they would catch things you did. Or maybe you've been around somebody and you're like, oh my gosh, they're watching me. I just want to remind you, you always have an audience. Especially when you're suffering. So even if you say, Scott, I, I'm not really a witness. I don't have anybody that I'm really close to who's a follower, not a follower of Jesus. I'm not trying to share my faith. It doesn't matter. People are watching you. They're watching your life. They're watching how you live. They're listening to what you say. And you always have an audience. But especially do you have an audience when you're going through something difficult. And this is why Peter says this in 1 Peter, because his audience, these followers of Jesus who are living in modern-day Turkey, they were going through suffering. 
And he's saying, hey, people are watching you go through suffering. They're watching you live. And you're giving a witness whether you're aware of it or not. And friends, this is why Christianity spread like wildfire in the first three centuries of the A.D. It was not because Christians had it easy. It was not because they had political power. It was not because they lived in a Christian nation. They had none of those things. Christianity spread like wildfire because the early Christians had an audience while they were suffering and they were witnesses to the difference that the hope of Jesus made in the midst of their suffering. And people said, why are you living that way? How are you doing this? And eventually they said, I want some of that. So that's why when when people pray, God, help us to have a a brighter future, help us to have a suffering-free future— I wonder if God answers that prayer if it might actually be counter to his own mission and purposes. And perhaps the suffering that God is allowing in our time is actually a key tool to advancing his mission and his purposes in his kingdom. Again, before we go on to the second one, I just want to remind you of the big idea. God wants to use you and how you live and where you are and with the people who are watching you to point others to him. But there's another question Peter asks. And he asks us to consider, what are we witnesses to? Now, if we were going in logical order, to me, I would have done what we're witnesses to first before we go to how to witness. But we're just following Peter's outline here. The first thing he says that we are to witness to, if you're taking notes, is the good news of Christ's death in our place, which reconciles us to God. The good news of Christ's death in our place, which reconciles us to God. And he unpacks this in 1 Peter 3, 18. He says, for, for Christ also suffered for sins once and for all. And so at one moment in time, Christ suffered for everyone, for all of our sins, past, present, and future, for those who had lived, for those who were living, and for those who would live. Christ suffered the penalty for your sin and my sin. The sin we have committed, the sin we're committing right now, the sin we're going to commit in the future. He died and suffered once and for all. The righteous, that's Christ, for the unrighteous, that's all the rest of us. That's why there's only two kinds of people in the world. Those who think they are righteous, but aren't, and those who are righteous, who know they aren't. See, followers of Jesus are righteous, but we know we're not. And we know our righteousness is only from Him. That He might bring you to God. Again, none of us get to God on our own, by our merit, through our effort. We only get to God through Jesus. And He was put to death in the flesh on the cross, but He was made alive by the Spirit, and the same thing is true for you and for me. In our flesh, we're dead. But because of what Jesus has done, we're alive in our spirit, and our bodies are wasting away. You can't do what you used to. You don't look like you used to. But spiritually, you're more alive than ever before. So he says, that's the good news that we share. The second thing that we share is the power of Jesus over death and the devil. And here's where we got to dive into what I consider to be the weirdest part of 1 Peter. 
So I'm going to try not to get totally sidetracked here, but we've got to talk about it because I know you may ask me about it later and I'll save me a thousand lobby conversations after the service. And just so you know, I'm using my brain when I read the Bible too. So this is what Peter says. In which Jesus also went and made proclamation to the spirits, we'll point to that word spirits, in prison, who in the past were disobedient when God patiently waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared in it, that is, eight people were saved through water. Now, some of you are saying, what on earth does that mean, Scott? Well, I don't totally know. And most people aren't 100% sure. But I'm going to walk you through what we do know. Those spirits that Jesus went and proclaimed to, I can tell you for sure who they're not. They're not people that he went and proclaimed to who were given a chance after death to put their faith in Jesus because for sure what this passage can't mean is there's a second chance salvation. Jesus tells a story in Luke 16 called the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. And after this rich man and Lazarus die, the rich man is in hell and Lazarus is in heaven and there is this chasm between the two that no one can cross. So, so this passage can't mean that Jesus goes and preaches to people who have died and says, hey, one more chance, final opportunity, because that is clearly stated by Jesus himself as an impossibility. So that's the first thing it can't mean. So I, I only really know what it can't mean. But here's what it could mean. These spirits could be fallen angels who became demons and are now in hell. One-third of the angels chose to follow Lucifer, who you know as the devil. You'll see a comical version in two weeks on a Monday night in little red clothing with a hat and a tail. Not what it looks like, by the way. Um, but makes for a good costume. But it could mean those angels who fell from heaven when they rebelled against God and who were deceiving people in the days of Noah. It could mean that. It could also mean the people who were evil during Noah's day who were destroyed in the flood. Could mean either one of these. But what we do know is Jesus wasn't going to evangelize those spirits because the word that's used to proclaim is not the word that's used for evangelism in the New Testament. It's the word announcing. And so Jesus is announcing to them either those who were evil in the days of Noah or those angels who rebelled against God. He's announcing to them, I won. I'm victorious. I have defeated your power, the power of sin, death. So you're like, Scott, I think I'm more confused than when I started. Welcome to my life. But we're going to move on. The third thing he shares in this passage that we share or talk about is our new life in Christ. And in verse 21, we read that baptism, which corresponds to this, this moving from the death in the flesh to life in the spirit, baptism now saves you through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And this is why we practice baptism. It's this public testimony of the salvation that's happened in a person as they've moved from death in the flesh to life in the spirit. It's one of the reasons why we don't practice private, secret baptisms. People often ask me, hey, can I get baptized in secret? And I say, I love you, but no. Because following Jesus is not a private thing. It's a personal thing. 
but it's not a private thing. In the early days of Jesus, being baptized was identifying with Jesus and saying that Jesus was Lord and Caesar was not. I don't know any of us who were going to have our life taken from us because we got baptized, but that was certainly the experience of the early church. It was identifying with him and, and pledging your conscience that you are going to follow Jesus. The final thing that we talk about when we give witness is the living and victorious King Jesus. This passage ends by talking about how Jesus has gone, to the, gone into heaven is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers subject to him. And friends, this is where the struggle gets real. So pay attention. Don't turn the page. Don't close your Bible. This is where we have to get honest. This is where I've been hearing from you in hallway conversations and emails and messages. This is where this passage gets real. You have Jesus on the throne. He's conquered sin and death and the grave. And he has all authority. And yet you're still in suffering. He's on the throne, but your marriage is barely hanging on. He's on the throne, and yet your child has turned their back on God and turned their back on you. He's on the throne. And yet you got that diagnosis that you were praying would not come. What gives? How can Jesus be living and victorious and me be living and struggling? See, that's, that's where 1 Peter begins to press into us, and that's why I want to remind you, I told you the first week of this series, it's the Job of the New Testament. It's the honest conversation about suffering for the believer that you are not immune just because he died on the cross and your faith is in him. Scott, I'm a good person. Why would bad things happen to me? Because he was the best person and he died on that cross. So if he's not immune, you're not going to be immune either. I have a friend, he's reading through the Screwtape Letters by C.S. Lewis. It's a great book of C.S. Lewis imagining a conversation between one of those demons and a mentor demon. Again, it's a fictional book, but I think it offers us insight. And in that book, the mentor demon says, Do not be deceived, Wormwood. He's like the apprentice demon. Our cause is never more in danger than when a human, no longer desiring, but still intending to do our enemy's will, looks round upon a universe from which every trace of him seems to have vanished, asks why he's been forsaken, and still obeys. That's why Christianity is something the whole world knows about. That's why the whole world knows the name of Jesus. Whether he is their Lord, or he is their greatest curse to bear. For centuries, followers of Jesus continued to obey in the face of great suffering. Not because they were experiencing victory in the moment, 
but because they believed that Jesus had been victorious. And so here's the question I have for you. Today, with the struggle you're in, are you fighting for your victory? Or are you fighting from his victory? Are you struggling in whatever it is that you're facing today that's hard or difficult or hostile or adverse? Are you trying to fight and achieve your own victory? Or are you fighting from the place of his victory where the battle has already won, you're just waiting for him to bring that victory to bear in your life. And friends, the, the gap between these two is far bigger than just the difference between these two prepositions. When you're fighting for your victory, it's all on you. When you're fighting from his victory, it's all on him. This is one of the reasons why I believe so many of us who are followers of Jesus are battling anxiety today. Not the clinical kind. The everyday kind. Because we have put on our shoulders something that we cannot carry. That only he can. See, God wants to use you to point others to hope in him because he has already won. So here's some next steps for you today. The first one is I want you to pause today and really ask yourself this question. Am I fighting for my victory or am I fighting from his victory? And I want to encourage you if maybe you drive home with somebody today, you know, or you're heading to lunch with somebody or it's nine o'clock service, brunch. Wrestle with this question. What's the difference? How do you know the difference in your own life and which one is really happening? Because I will tell you, I've been... I've been cheering this question for a lot longer than you have. And there are so many places in my life that I realized I was trying, trying to win a battle and a victory in my own power. That according to Peter, he's already won. And so that, that weight, that stress, that anxiety, I don't have to carry that anymore. Number two, I want you to prepare for sharing. This is the get ready part by responding to these prompts. So if you want to get ready, when somebody asks you, why are you doing what you're doing? Why do you have hope? These are the three things you need to consider. First, this is what I've been through. There's a lot of things you're not an expert on, but the one thing you are is what you've lived through. You are the resident expert on that. You have a PhD in your own life. So what have you been through? Number two, this is who Jesus is and how I've experienced him. So in that stuff that you've been through, who have you experienced and seen Jesus to be? And then third, this is why I have hope in Jesus today. Those are three things that without going to seminary or buying an 800-page systematic theology book or a 400-page apologetics book, you can answer now, there may come a time and a place where you need to buy those books and you need to do that work. But all of us can begin to answer these three prompts today and begin to develop our answer that we're ready when someone asks us, why do you have hope? And then third, I want to invite you to empower your friends to hold you accountable for being a 1 Peter 3, 15 through 16 kind of witness. What this means is you empower people when you get on Facebook 
and you get a little bit excited or somebody says something that's wrong or somebody says something you disagree with that they can come in and private message you and go, hey buddy, what you doing? Hey buddy, I know you're right. I mean, I believe you're right. But did you share that with gentleness and respect? See, Jesus didn't call us to be keyboard warriors. He called us to be people who shared a reason for the hope that we have. And a lot of us, we're going to need help to do that well. So empower somebody to hold you accountable. That way they're ready, just like you're ready when the moment comes. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you so much for the fact that we are not the hope that we're sharing is not in ourselves. The hope that we're pointing people to is not us. It's you. And that's why our, our failures, our stumbles, our disappointments, the past moments that we've blown it are, are not disqualifications, but they're the places where you meet us and you begin to do amazing things humbling us, preparing us, giving us motivation to go and learn, get ready, and grow. Jesus, I don't wish suffering on anybody in this room. I don't wish difficulty, adversity, pain, or hostility. But I have a feeling somewhere in my gut that it's going to come for all of us. So I pray that we would be ready when those moments come to live out our faith with our actions and speak of it with our words in a way that points people to our hope in you. Jesus, you're the one who's righteous. You're the one who's holy. You're the one we are building